One of the things that I've been really finding interesting recently is the difference between traditions that have built up in Western and Eastern Christianity. Uh, if you're not super familiar with this, basically there are uh, two separate paths that the church went on for the last like thousand years or so. There's the Roman Catholics and the Protestants in the West, and then there's the Eastern Orthodox in the East. And as you can imagine, over a thousand years, a lot of different traditions and ideas and even theology has developed between the East and West uh, of the church. Uh, specifically, though, I've been really interested in some of the artwork that has been created on both the West and the East. I read a book recently that was all about how different depictions of the resurrection look different as time goes on between West and East. I, I, that's the kind of thing I find really, really interesting, and maybe if you're into art, you would be interested in that too. But as I was thinking about this sermon series, I, I just couldn't help but think about how, how interesting it is that our depictions of the resurrection in the West say a lot about how we think about this very important moment. For example, in ancient uh, Western depictions of the resurrection, uh, I've got a couple examples here, like this carving here. The focus is usually on things like the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb, it's the sleeping soldiers, it's the women who visit the tomb, right? These are the things that are in the Gospels, and, and so those are what, what's depicted. Now, what's not in these pictures is Jesus, right? For, most, for the most part. Or if he is depicted in the pictures, it's, it's usually him, like this next one here, it's, it's usually him just zipping off into the sky, like, peace out, everyone, later, and he's gone. And so if he is in the picture, he's usually, like, not around for long. And so I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but in these sort of Western depictions of the resurrection, the focus seems to be more about what isn't right? He isn't dead. He isn't in the tomb. He isn't here anymore, which is fine. I mean, it's all true, but I think it's interesting that here in the West, in the Western part of the church, we tend to have a pretty strong view of the life of Jesus. We have a pretty strong grasp of the death of Jesus and what that was all about, but when it comes to the resurrection, things get a little more fuzzy, don't they? We, we're a little bit, we have a bit of a harder time putting our finger on exactly what happened and, and what it means. Like, what, what exactly was Easter morning all about, and how does it affect me, and why should I care? Like, okay, the tomb is empty. Got it. So what? Well, that is what this series is all about. That's what this sermon series is all about, the resurrection. What happened, why it matters, and how it affects our lives. Oh, and yes, I am going to show you some of the Eastern Orthodox depictions of the resurrection a bit later, so if you're interested, hang tight. Uh, but yeah, this series, what I want to do before we get into it is give you a very high-level view of, of what we're doing here, what these next several weeks are going to be. Last week, uh, Tim shared kind of about the event of the resurrection itself. What, what actually happened historically? Uh, how do we know that it, that it really happened and that sort of thing? Well, today I'm going to talk about the event as well, but I'm going to talk about it more in some theological and even cosmic terms. Like what changed with reality when the resurrection happened? And then next week, we are going to turn and turn our attention to ourselves, our own resurrection. What, what's the, the hope that we have for life after death? 
And then on Easter, we are going to bring all these threads together, and we are going to talk about how do we live as resurrection people? How does this affect our actual day-to-day lives? Now, I'm going to admit, and I'm just going to shoot straight with you right out of the gate, this is a lot to think about, right? This is deep stuff. This is heavy stuff. It's, it's dense. It, it's not the kind of easy thing you could just slap on a bumper sticker. There's a lot to, to chew on here, um, but that's okay. That's okay. That's why we're taking several weeks to even just begin to work through some of it. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I want us to Before we dive in, I want to pray because what we're about to talk about is vital. It's crucial to understanding the basis of our faith. Uh, But again, it's difficult, and I don't want our eyes to glaze over. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak. Let's let's pray together. Father God, uh, I I ask right now that as we enter into this time of, of meditating on and thinking about your son's resurrection, I pray, Father, that you would enliven our hearts that you would give us new insights, new perspectives that would, that would uh, uh, spark in our minds and in our hearts with, with the hope that we have in, in the resurrected Jesus and the hope that we have for our own resurrection. Father, in these moments, would you just speak through me? I, I pray that I would simply disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Would we have ears to hear what you have to say for us today? I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected one. Amen. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to spend this week and next week looking at, at a, a part of Scripture, which is kind of like the foremost passage all about resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. So please grab a Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to use uh, one of the house Bibles in the seats around you, it's going to be page 959. And just think, let me give you a little bit of context before we read. Uh, so Corinth, the city that this letter was written to, was a prosperous city down the road from Athens in Greece. And I actually have a map here. You can see the Apostle Paul traveled to Corinth there on the left, and he planted the church. He started the church in Corinth, and then he wrote this letter to them, probably from the city of Ephesus on the other side of the Aegean Sea. Now, that map, in case you're interested, that's actually a map that I I made for my class about Ephesus. I recently taught about an hour and a half class all about ancient Ephesus and how it affects our understanding of the Apostle Paul and the New Testament. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, if you like the world behind the text, uh, I would encourage you to check it out. There's the video and some resources all on that page, gracechurch.us slash Ephesus. Um, thought I'd throw that in there because some of you, somebody in here is bound to find that interesting, surely. So uh, please check that out if that's something you're interested in. Okay, so basically, uh, the church in Corinth, they got off to a great start, and, but, but Paul didn't stay there very long, and he was gone before too much happened, and the Corinthians had a bunch of questions, a bunch of follow-up questions that they started asking him, and so they sent some people to find Paul in Ephesus and say, hey, Paul, we've got these questions for you, like, uh, are we allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? Are we supposed to do that? Or can you explain a little bit more about this whole spiritual gifts thing? Like, how is that supposed to work? Or, or you said that everyone's going to be resurrected. What exactly is that going to look like? Like, what kind of bodies are we going to have? How is that going to work? And so 1 Corinthians is basically, among other things, it's Paul's response with answers to their questions. And so what we're about to read in chapter 15 is Paul addressing their questions about resurrection. But before we get into the answer, the specific answer to that question, uh, Paul begins this chapter uh, talking about 
something that he sees as the very core, very crucial core of understanding resurrection in the first place, what he calls the good news, the gospel. He's going to remind them, this is the core of your faith that I told you about when I was with you. So here's what he says in verse 1 of, of chapter 15. He says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It's this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Okay, so there we go. That, what we just read, that is Paul's gospel. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was raised from the dead, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by many. Put simply, Jesus, the Messiah, is alive. He is alive. Now, those ideas to us, they probably don't strike us as all that remarkable because they're familiar, right? We're used to these ideas. These are things that we've heard over and over again. But I want to draw your attention to something that Paul says twice in that passage, which I, I think we often skim right by. He says that all of this happened just as the scriptures said, just as the scriptures said, or more literally in the Greek, that all this happened according to the scriptures. Now, it's important to remember that when we talk, when Paul talks about the scriptures, uh, he's not talking about the whole of the Bible that we have today. He's talking about the Old Testament. Or, or the Hebrew Bible, because the New Testament, like this letter, was obviously still being written. So he's talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. So according to Paul, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it happened perfectly in line with what the Old Testament said. That's what he's saying here. Jesus himself said the same thing. There's this moment in Luke 24 where some of the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead, they have no clue what's going on. They're baffled. They're confused. And Jesus shows up to them, and he explains what happened. He explains the resurrection, but he does it using, again, the Old Testament. Here's what Luke tells us. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, a.k.a. the Hebrew Bible, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So bottom line, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, according to Jesus and Paul, happened just as the scriptures said. Here's why I think this is important to pay attention to. Because today, again, these, these ideas are perhaps very familiar to us. Jesus died, he rose again. Sure, we all get that. It's familiar to us. Now, the earliest followers of Jesus were flabbergasted. They had no clue how to make sense of this. Even though they had the Old Testament, they didn't understand how and why Jesus rose from the grave. And again, today, it's all familiar, so we don't share the same shock and confusion at the resurrection that the earliest, earliest disciples uh, did. We don't share that. But I do think that we share a potential risk, a potential risk. And the risk is this. If we, in, in modern 2023 20, American church, if we 
don't understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus in light of the whole of the Bible, including the Old Testament, then I think we also might miss the full truth of what actually happened when Christ rose from the grave, right? We may not be shocked by it, but we still might miss the point. That's what I'm trying to say. For example, if we think that the resurrection of Jesus is just some kind of an odd, happy ending to the crucifixion story, if that's all it is to us, I got another thing coming. That's not, that's not the whole story. Or another thing, if, if, if we are very familiar with uh, the life of Jesus, uh, we, we, you know, we've got a really clear idea of who he was then. He's a, he's a teacher, he's a healer, he's an all-around nice guy, good with kids. Like if that's, if that's what we think of as Jesus, but when we think about who he is now as resurrected Lord, and that just kind of is fuzzy and, and kind of blurry and a little hard for us to wrap our minds around, then we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do. Because I believe, and I would say Paul believes, that the resurrection of Jesus is actually the focal point of our faith. I'm going to say something that's probably a little controversial to some. It's not the cross. The cross is not the focal point of our faith. The resurrection is. Okay, I don't know if I got in trouble by saying that, but that's what I believe. And I would say Paul argues the same thing. All right, here's the deal. Paul says that this happened, the resurrection happened, just as the scriptures said. And if we claim to follow Jesus, I think we should probably understand what that means. I think we probably should. So let's dig into it. We're going we're gonna to keep reading a few verses later what Paul has to say. Uh, we're going to skip a few, a little bit, what basically, he, he quotes one of the questions that the Corinthians were asking. I guess there were some people in Corinth who were questioning whether or not the resurrection or any resurrection was even possible. And Paul's like, guys, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then our whole faith is pointless. Again, the resurrection's the focal point of our faith. He says all that, and then he goes here in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So again, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus happened just as the scriptures said. And in what we just read, he's beginning to explain how. In this, uh, these few verses, Paul goes all the way back to the story of Genesis. Look at verse 22. It's the first book of the Bible. Uh, verse 22, he says, everyone dies because we all belong to Adam. So in the theological imagination of the Old Testament, the first human, Adam, kind of represents all of us. He, I mean, his name literally means human. He kind of represents humanity. And, and Adam, in the story, as the father of humanity, he makes a choice. He makes a choice which brings death into the world. And his choice was this. Instead of trusting in the commands of his creator, what did he do? He rebelled. And he did what he thought was, was best in his own eyes. He, he decided to take matters into his own hands, and he sinned. That's what sin means. And that sin, that departure from God's desires and commands, that began a cascade. From Adam onwards, a cascade of death and pain and abuse and injustice and violence that rippled through every human generation that came after. 
Because all of us, every single one of us, we're all just like Adam. We seem doomed to make the same choice that he did. We rebel, we sin, we all belong to Adam. Humanity as a whole, we have broken God's good creation and death is the consequence. That, right there, that is the narrative conflict of the whole Old Testament. But... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cram a ton of scripture into one very, very short statement. But there's another narrative at work, a counter-narrative to this narrative of death. Even as humanity is spreading death in the Hebrew Bible and violence, God is on a mission to bring life, to bring life back to us. That is the counter-narrative of the Old Testament. And what you see, uh, by the time you get to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, you see that the Israelites were holding on to a pretty clear hope for the future. They believed that, that one day, the end of time, in the day of the Lord, as they called it, death, the death that began with Adam would be overcome. They believed, this is how they understood uh, what happened after death, they believed that when a righteous person died, then they, they went and somehow would, would kind of be carried in the, in the arms of God for a period of time until, until the day of the Lord when he would remake everything, a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation where these righteous people of God would be given new bodies. They'd be given new bodies. They'd be resurrected to live with him forever in, a, in, a, in a, a reality that was free of death and free of pain and free of tears. It would be, that was their hope, right? This was their hope that one day all who are righteous would be resurrected. But look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Literally, he is the first fruits. If you've got a big grape harvest, he's the first grape that you pick off the vine. His resurrection is the first. In other words, what Paul is saying here to, to his listeners who understand the great story is that this future hope, this future hope of resurrection for God's people, well, it isn't future anymore. It's begun, it's started. He's saying death came into the world through Adam, but new life has come into the world through Christ. Verse 21, the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead has begun. This right here, this is the first idea, the key idea that we've got to grasp if we want to fully understand or try to fully understand how the resurrection of Jesus happened just as the scriptures said. Easter was not some one-off event that was unique to Jesus. It was the beginning of new creation. It was the first resurrection, the first resurrection of all of humanity, but there are many, many more resurrections to come. Are you with me? New creation has begun. The end of time, the, the day of the Lord has started to happen already. All right, so let's keep reading because there's a little bit more here uh, that Paul gets into about what this resurrection began in light of the Old Testament. He says this, uh, at the end of verse 23, he says, all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And after that, verse 24, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hmm. 
Now, I know what probably some of you are thinking when you read that, <laughs> destroying rulers and humbling his enemies. It seems a little bit militaristic for meek and mild old Jesus, doesn't it? All of a sudden he's coming out black. What is this, like the chosen two, the revengeance? Like Jesus was, was killed on the cross and now he's coming back for, for blood. No, that's not what's going on, all right? I'll just tell you now, that's not what's happening. What Paul is doing here is he's continuing to explain how the resurrection happened just as the scriptures said. Because even though we don't necessarily see it at face value, in those three verses that we just read, Paul is, is evoking images and ideas from all over the Old Testament. And if we were as, as deeply rooted in the Old Testament as his readers would have been, these would have all been sparking in our minds. So I'm going to try to explain a little bit of what is he evoking when he says all of this. If you continue the story, if you look at that, that grand narrative of Scripture from Adam onwards in the Hebrew Bible, you see uh, part of that, that the consequence of Adam's sin and, and humanity's sin is that as we sin, our sin gets kind of tangled up with these dark spiritual powers that are opposed to the purposes of God. Uh, these, these things like wealth or sex or, or might and power itself, these things, they, they become God's that rule over humanity. And, and people keep worshiping them. They give their lives to these gods because they want more of what they're offering. These gods, they, they are the gods that empower human empires. Human empires. And, and as they do, these empires do what? They spread violence. They spread injustice. They spread pain. You can look it up. Literally, read the Old Testament. Every single time a human king in the Bible tries to become the master of the universe— you know what's going to happen next. It only leads to more death, more destruction, more sin. That's what happens. It's a pattern. It's a cycle. It's like it goes on and on and on, and it just keeps happening. These spiritual rulers and authorities and powers of this world, as Paul calls them, that we keep giving our lives to, that we keep worshiping, these powers are radioactive powers, right? They feed on the sin of humanity, and they, they spread death to us. That's the narrative of the Old Testament. But again, there's a counter-narrative. There's a counter-narrative. Because through all of this death and all of this despair, God is on a mission to bring life, as I said. And according to the Hebrew Bible, he is going to do this through, of all people, a human. Right? We've completely shot our opportunity to be faithful to God, and yet what does he choose to do? He chooses from the, through the old, whole Old Testament, he is going to bring about this mission of life through a human agent, a human leader who doesn't fall into the trap of sin, but one who trusts in God's commands. And, and again, I'm, this is, I could go on and on. You look at all the human leaders that show up in Israel, King David, King Solomon, all these different people, Moses, and you keep thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? And of course they all fail, don't they? They all fail. They all fall prey to the same powers of this world. And yet there was hope, a narrative that would say that someday a human will come who will stay faithful to God and who will be able to destroy the powers of this world. This human will have true authority given to him by God. One of the ways that this human is depicted is as the son of man in Daniel 7, this prophecy of Daniel 7. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will be destroyed. A son of man, a human. That's crazy. 
Well, to Paul, that son of man is Jesus because Jesus never gave in to the powers of this world, which is why he could defeat them because he never, he never worshiped at their feet. He's the one that David wrote about when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. That is where Paul got the idea in verse 25 of Christ humbling his enemies beneath his feet. These aren't human enemies. These are the powers, the spiritual forces that humans continue to give their lives to. It's exactly what the Hebrew Bible said would happen. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that the scriptures promised could defeat the powers, even the power of death itself, the last enemy. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Again, I could go on and on and on and on about this. The Hebrew Bible is humming with anticipation. Humming with anticipation of a future day in which God's chosen servant, a new Adam, a new Adam would be empowered to overcome the powers of this world, even death itself, and usher in a new creation where God's people could live resurrected in a world free of sin. That's what the scriptures said. And according to Paul, the very core of the gospel, the very essence of the good news of Jesus is the fact that all of those future hopes have already begun to be fulfilled. That's the gospel. On the cross, on the cross as Jesus died, I find this fascinating in light of the whole story. The powers of this world they did their worst to him. I mean, think about who showed up. Think about what was, what was dominating the crucifixion. We've got the human empire of Rome, right? This, this uh, empire empowered by the gods of violence and, and greed. That empire was flexing its muscle and gloating over him. We've got the religious leaders of Israel. They were led into, into a murderous frenzy by the evil one. And you had sinful humans, sinful humans just like you and me, rejecting the very Son of God because we thought that we knew better, just like our ancestor Adam. We were the ones to drive the nails. Jesus died just as the Scriptures said. This grand story of humanity's enslavement to death was summed up as Jesus breathed his last but so was the counter-narrative. God raised Christ from the dead, just as the scriptures said. The long-awaited act of new creation had finally begun. In this moment of new life, Easter morning, not only was the authority of Jesus, the Son of Man, confirmed, he was the one that we were waiting for, but the powers of this world were humiliated. The spiritual forces, which had once had so much control over humanity, were defanged. They lost their power because now Christ is on the throne. And his enemies, those agents of death and, and violence and chaos, they know they're living on borrowed time. And get this, because Christ's resurrection has proven the power of God's life-giving spirit, his followers, you and me, we can reject the allure of the powers of this world. We are no longer slaves to sin. 
We can live into the truth that this broken world we live in is not the end of the story. Because Christ rose again, we can trust that we too will one day be resurrected into new life. As Paul says later in this chapter, again, quoting the Old Testament, he says this, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture, again, from the Old Testament, will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory. This is the new reality that we have lived into ever since that first Easter morning. We are living in the fulfillment of the counter-narrative. So earlier I mentioned the differences between Eastern and Western depictions of the, of the resurrection, right? And again, just as a refresher, in the West, we focus on what isn't, right? We focus on the empty tomb. He's not there. We focus on Jesus flying off to heaven. He's not here anymore. Peace out. So long. Thanks for all the fish. He's gone. That's what we focus on, right? But in the East, and this is profound to me, in the East, artwork about the resurrection focuses on how this moment of him rising from the grave fulfilled the grand story of Scripture. Like in this, this gorgeous fresco from the, probably the 14th century when it, was, when it was made, this fresco. Okay, this is in the East. This is in Byzantium, Constantinople. So this, this uh, fresco, let me explain what's happening here. Obviously, that's Jesus in the middle. But what is he standing on? He's standing on the gates of Hades, the realm of the underworld. They're shattered. There's little bits of locks and keys scattered all over the ground. And you can't really see super well, but underneath, there's, there's Hades himself. The god of death is being trampled by Jesus as he emerges victorious from the grave. And what does Jesus have in his hands? What is he doing? He is ripping uh, limp-wristed Adam and Eve right out of the grave along with him. Look at that. He is pulling. That's Adam and that's Eve right there. He is pulling them out of death. He is bringing new life out of death while all of these other heroes of the faith look on. We've got King David. We've got Solomon. We've got John the Baptist all looking on as Jesus fulfills the grand story of Scripture. You and I, if we were illiterate in the 14th century, we would walk into Korah Church in Constantinople and we would look up and we would see ourselves that's Adam, that's Eve, that's me being pulled out of the grave. And it's the same thing in all these other depictions from, from the, the Byzantine church. I mean, look at these. Look, this isn't just an empty tomb. This is the moment that everything changed. I mean, right now he's actually trampling down Hades, right? Hades is actually on the ground. Look at the, this next one. Jesus, every single time, Adam is just being ripped out of the grave. Look at that. He's being pulled out of the grave. The gates are, in sh are shattered on the ground. They're not being made again. And look at this next one, my favorite one. Look at, look at uh, Hades down at the bottom. He's like, no, <laughs> they're all leaving. Yes, yes they are, because Christ is victorious. This is the moment that everything in, the, in our reality changed. This is the moment the scriptures were fulfilled and the mission of God bore fruit for the first time in our world. This is the moment that Christ brought life and new creation into a world filled with death. 
In a moment, we are going to sing. And I've asked the, the production team to put up that fresco a bit longer. So you can look at that picture. And while we sing, I just want you to take a second. Think about the grand storyline that came to fruition in the resurrection of Jesus. And more than that, I want you to think about yourself. Put yourself into that painting and ask, what God do you want me to hear about my own resurrection? I want you to think about the good news that is at the core of our faith. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He rose again, just as the scriptures said. Jesus, the Messiah, is alive. And because of his resurrection, now so are we. Let's pray. Father, what do we say? <laughs> Look at those paintings. We didn't do anything to earn this. Adam and Eve in that, in that fresco, they are, they are just being dragged out of the grave. It wasn't because they earned it. And so, Father, would you just impress upon our hearts the power and the transformation of our reality that took place that first Easter morning. And Father, I pray that for every single one of us, we would understand more fully, more deeply, how deep your love for us is, that you would be willing to send your only son to bring us back from the jaws of death. We pray this all in the name of our resurrected Savior. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.